2: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. I'm here today with Megan Ryburn to talk about her book, Uncertain Citizenship, Everyday Practices of Bolivian Migrants in Chile. Dr. Ryburn is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow in the London School of Economics, Latin American and Caribbean Center. Her book received an honorable mention for the best book of social sciences in 2019 from the Lhasa Southern Cone Studies section. She is the book review editor of the Journal of Latin American Studies. Welcome, uh, Megan, to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be invited to talk to you. Um, I really appreciate it.
2: Well, let's start off. um, The New Books Network likes to start by asking our authors to give us a little bit of how you got into this topic and even about your intellectual formation uh, as a scholar. So what made you want to write a book about Bolivian migrants in Chile?
1: Well, I guess the answer to that actually goes quite a a way back um, to when I was in high school. Um, I'm originally from New Zealand, although I haven't lived there in a long time. Um, And my interest in Chile and Latin America was sparked by a high school exchange to Santiago, um, which might not sound like an obvious place to go, but really, if you go east from Auckland uh, Chile is pretty much our nearest neighbor. It's about a 14 hour flight across the Pacific. Um, and so this began my kind of what has really become, I think, a lifelong interest with the continent. And then this is coupled with a long standing interest in forced and voluntary migration, which I developed particularly during my undergraduate degree, also in New Zealand. Um, So my honours dissertation was based on oral history interviews that I conducted with some of the Chileans who came to my hometown of Christchurch as exiles from the Pinochet dictatorship. And sort of like then leading on from this, um, it was quite a natural step to then go and live in Chile and Santiago for a couple of years. After my undergraduate degree, I taught English and I volunteered with a refugee and migrant NGO there. Um, and then I went to study my master's and PhD in the UK, and the book is based on the doctorate that I carried out there, um, which I undertook under the, the brilliant supervision of Professor Kathy McElwain, who's a migration studies expert, and Professor James Dunkley, who's um, one of the foremost historians of Bolivia, um, and with them we formulated this project um, about yeah, Bolivian migration to Chile, so that's really how it how it all came about.
2: That's, that's great. Um, so, Let's talk a little bit about the history of Bolivians, particularly in Chile, and how how they come to cross the border in so many numbers, and what draws them to Chile. Okay.
1: Um, so I guess maybe to start off, just a little bit of background about uh, something of the history of Bolivian migration, uh, perhaps a little more generally, and then more specifically to Chile. So... Um, in, I think these estimates are, are a couple of years old now, but it's estimated that between 7 and 23% of the Bolivian population reside outside the country. And why there's such a big margin there is that statistics on migration are sort of notoriously hard to get accurate statistics Um there's often no comprehensive um, database for recording exits and entrances, and um, some people may enter or remain in destination countries without documentation. But basically, we conclude that there's we can conclude that there's quite a high percentage of the Bolivian population living outside the country. Um, and this this migration to other countries um, really began particularly in the 1970s, which was, as you'll know better than me, I'm sure, um, a decade of real political upheaval. Um, And then this was followed in the 1980s by the implementation of um, neoliberal economic policies under President Paz Estensoro. And basically there was this political upheaval and then the long-term impact of these economic measures was increased um, was increased social injustice, a lack of economic growth um, and things like unemployment rising to around 20 percent and working conditions becoming increasingly precarious. And this started to drive um, migration to to other predominantly neighbouring countries in this moment. Um, And just to, to backtrack there a little bit, there had before this and sort of continuing in this period also been um a real increase in rural to urban migration within Bolivia which has continued to this day but then in terms of this migration to other neighboring countries um in the in the 70s and 80s the kind of preferred destination really is is uh, Argentina and particularly Buenos Aires um and it's worth highlighting that um quite a lot of this migration was it was predominantly um, women migrating a lot of women would go to work in Buenos Aires in small sweatshops that were producing um, garments um, and the labouring conditions were really pretty appalling and um, very limited protection for their labour rights um, and often women would really be in a, a situation of sort of debt bondage so this was one one type of migration that was quite happening quite a lot in in this period and has indeed actually continued to the present day um, and there's still a lot of Bolivians in Buenos Aires in Argentina more broadly um, but following the 2001 crisis in Argentina and the devaluation of the Argentine peso um, a lot of people who previously might have looked to Argentina as a destination also started to look elsewhere um, and for those who had the resources to do so, um, moving outside of the continent became a, an increasingly popular option, particularly to Spain and to the United States. Um, but there were still many Bolivians on, on lower incomes in this who could not afford to leave the continent, but felt uh, that it was necessary to leave the country in, in search of really a, a better life. Um and, you know, as, as as Bolivia entered the 21st century, it remained one of the poorest countries in, in Latin America. So this was something that was really pushing migration. Um, so in this period, following the devaluation of the Argentine Peso and the crisis there, Brazil becomes a very popular destination, particularly Sao Paulo. Um, and then this is where we also start to see this shift towards Chile. Um, And this is kind of consonant really with with more general shifts in migration to Chile since the 1990s. So with the return to democracy in Chile um, in in 89, 1990, um, we slowly start start to see an increase in migration and then really kind of a boom in the last decade. So just to give you some some sense of that in numerical terms... um, In 1992, there were an estimated sort of 115,000 migrants living in Chile, which is about uh, just under 1% of the total population. Then when I was um, conducting a major part of of the work in this book in around sort of 2015, um, the the migrant population in Chile was about 465,000 or 2.7% of the population. And today there are over 1.25 million migrants in the country, and that's around 7% of the total population. So it really has been exponential growth.
2: And we also- That's a really startling number.
1: <laughs> it sure is, right? Yeah. It's pretty astonishing. Um, and I guess the only the thing that has been consistent through this time is that around 90% of those migrants have been from other Latin American countries. Um but whilst it used to be mainly um, Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, um now there's real increasing diversity. So we've got more people coming from from Venezuela, which makes sense, right? Um also from Colombia, um and then also further afield as well, like haiti and and other places as well. So your
2: book then becomes really timely because while well, uncertain citizenship is concerned with the citizenship of migrants specifically, and, you, you show how those migrants have lived experience of inclusion and exclusion that complicate formal binaries of citizen or non-citizen, and they move through their lives and across borders and end up with a number of overlapping, changing statuses. Mm-hmm. So your, your exploration of this transnational, this overlapping, this fluctuating space of citizenship, what does this way of understanding offer scholars of both migration and citizenship in the global South?
1: Um, that's a big question and one which i'll I'll, I'll try to answer. Um, and I think I think the best way might be to answer that in a bit of a circuitous way by first um, trying to summarize a little some of the conceptual thinking in the book uh, before I, I come back to try and respond better to your question. Um, so drawing on this ethnographic fieldwork, I use it to develop um, these twin ideas of transnational spaces of citizenship and uncertain citizenship. And to do this, um, I draw on work on the anthropology and sociology of citizenship in Latin America, and also feminist scholarship on citizenship that comes from within political theory. Um, And from both these bodies of work, citizenship is increasingly understood as both possession of a formal legal status and the ability to access substantive rights, like say the right to shelter or the right to healthcare. Um, and also citizenship is understood as something that is constantly being constructed right and this is both through top-down processes and and from below through the everyday practices of ordinary people who may have a uh, uniform possession of formal citizenship status but of course may often have differentiated access to these more substantive rights of citizenship and this This access is often contingent on social identities like gender, like race and class. Um, And how this relates to migrant citizenship. Well, migrant citizenship has often been thought of in these quite binary terms. So migrants are either thought of as they're either a citizen or they're a non-citizen. And if not in these terms, then it's thought of maybe in what we could think of as a triadic formation. So migrants are citizens, they're non-citizens, or they're in this quite neat third space. And for me, in doing this fieldwork, what I found was I didn't didn't feel like these approaches really conveyed this cross-border entanglement of fluctuating and multiple and simultaneous exclusions from some aspects of citizenship, but inclusion in others that many migrants live. Um, And so I prefer instead to think about um, migrants' relationships to different but interconnected transnational spaces of citizenship. So the legal, economic, social and political spaces. And I use this as a device to try and remind myself to help my readers um, pay attention to each of these these um, spaces, but also acknowledge that there's a lot of overlap Um, and sort of to, to and I think about these spaces as constructed by interactions between individuals but also with states and then perhaps international organizations um, and groups within civil society Um, but sort of to put that in more more simple concrete terms what to give an example um say upon moving to chile i would suggest that a mestizo bolivian man who has a university degree is likely to experience very different patterns of exclusion from those of say, an indigenous Bolivian woman who hasn't finished secondary school. So to take this as a kind of hypothetical case, um, perhaps she's on the very peripheral periphery of legal citizenship in Chile. So maybe she holds a tourist visa, but she's working unauthorized. Whilst of course, she has full possession of legal citizenship in Bolivia uh, where she's not currently residing. And then if we, we look at the political, say she's exercising her right to extraterritorial voting perhaps and as part of a dance fraternity in Chile which is something I see as as a potentially political um, act uh, but she cannot vote in Chile. With respect to the social, she perhaps had better access to healthcare in Bolivia than in Chile and with regards to the economic she's left Bolivia because she couldn't find waged employment there but she's very precariously employed in agriculture in northern Chile and these these Complex aspects of her citizenship um, across borders could shift and change, and this depends both on her exercise of agency through maybe a practice like applying for legal residency, perhaps with support from a migrant organisation, but also on more structural factors like a change to immigration law. And a change in one of these dimensions of her citizenship might impact another dimension, but it equally might not. Um, And this very complex array of shifting inclusions and exclusions, um, for me, I I felt like it was best captured through a lens of uncertainty, which is an optic I've realised has been used quite a lot in other ethnographic research um, in topics in the Global South. Um, And for me, uncertainty goes some way to trying to capture uh, this exclusion and inclusion and this state of flux. So after saying all of that, and to return to your question, um, what I I really hope that this approach does is to encourage us to think about citizenship and and not just migrant citizenship, citizenship more broadly, as a fluid and lived experience across multiple dimensions, which is very profoundly impacted by social identities and, and becomes even further
2: complicated when people move across borders. I think that framework offers a lot of utility for understanding the way that uh, migration is experienced, both in the global South, but not only, because I can see the application of of these ideas in contexts such as the United Kingdom or the United States as well. And I, so I think it's, it's very helpful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your methodology here, mm-hmm. because you are doing a um, multi-sided ethnography, and you are Trying to participate within and build trust with a series of vulnerable populations that tend to be, you know, many scholars have seen this, right? Fairly wary of being too findable, uh, too um, identifiable, or engaging with institutions at all. So, how do you? How did you approach this in your research? How did you try to um, build trust while keeping your informants safe, and um, think about your own positionality in these communities? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, first of all, I'd say, I I just think that's such a good and important question and something I try to keep um, very present and which I think we, we really can't give too much attention to as researchers. Um, and I guess there, there are kind of various points to, to my answer to this. So first of all, I think, um, an ethnographic as opposed to perhaps other qualitative methods approach has been really fundamental for me um, in this research in terms of allowing me to try to slowly build relationships of trust. Um, So to give time and space um, for potential participants to get to know me and to really try and make sure that that I'm engaging in a sort of a a process of proper informed consent. Um, The emphasis there really on the informed part, to be part of the project so people really understand what it's about. Um, And also, and in conjunction to that, it's always been important for me to work in collaboration with organisations that are advocating for migrants' rights um, and are able to offer support services to the participants in my research so that I could, um, you know, be also a liaison point for um, a vulnerable population um, and to say, put them in touch with um, services that could offer um, legal advice or, or sort of social work and psychological support services if, if those were necessary. So that's really important to me as well. Um, and then I guess the other the other um, part of my response here would be to say, yeah, it's it's hugely important to try and maintain a critical stance regarding one's own positionality. Um And this is always imperfect, um, you know, uh, and it means constantly trying to remind oneself and to recognise, in my case, my privilege as a straight, white, middle-class woman from the global north, and what this means in the different contexts of my research. Because whilst, yes, of course, a lot of it has been carried out directly with migrants who who may um, be experiencing different kinds of vulnerabilities, I also, you know, have conducted research in places like uh, consulates and, and so... I do work across different spaces as well. Um, And my identity, of course, means different things in different places. Um, And I guess a big part for me of of thinking about positionality is trying to talk and write about this as openly as possible, even though, and especially because this is sometimes really uncomfortable. Um, And I try in the introduction to my book to give a few examples of this. And I think the one for me that I I always really come back to um, is thinking about my relationship with with uh, the migrant participants in my work. So these relationships were generally coloured by real kindness, openness and trust. Um, I was really received very warmly um, once we'd kind of addressed these concerns, um, these very valid concerns around confidentiality and anonymity. And there'd be a lot of laughing and joking. And I would also share experiences of my life, right? Um, And I would see a shift in relationship as we kind of moved from a more formal, reserved relationship where we might be using usted to to using tú and and things like this. But there were these moments that I think were very important reminders to me of the vast differences between our life situations. And and one in particular was at the end of an exchange with a woman who I'll call Magdalena. She was working as a live-in maid. And we'd been having quite a serious conversation and then it evolved into we were kidding around about relationships, struggling commitments and and laughing. And then suddenly she just touches my arm and she says, hey, I know I could come and and work as your maid and I could look after your children. And for me, it was just such a stark reminder of... uh, you know, there was so much truth inherent of that, that observation about our vastly different circumstances. And I think it's, yeah, it's beholden to us as researchers to, to come back to this and to think about these things.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Particularly for researchers who are new to this kind of ethnographic approach, it would um, behoove them to read your, your exploration because the, these issues are so present when you're dealing with um, any any sort of community of people that's very different but it's also true that the the personal and these the personal relationships can get very um caught up in and it almost overshadows what is still a difference in life experience that is substantial and so um yeah i think you i think your book treats that well thank you for sharing that um so i want to talk a little bit about the structure of your book because you you start by offering uh, the the reader your sort of theoretical framework around citizenship and uncertainty, and then you talk about the different places and spaces of this kind of uncertain citizenship, and then the the last several chapters are exploring different different moments, different ways of getting at these different valences and these overlapping and fluctuating spaces. So let's start with your chapter on papaleo, and what you use, you use this term, which is like paperwork bureaucracy, right? I, I love it, having done research in Bolivia before. Um, so your, your research sees the importance of this official bureaucratic status, but instead of using it as like a cutoff point, you are, um, you're not trying to overemphasize this divide. So you look at Papaleo as a practice or as a process and an experience. Can you share some examples of how this works in your book?
1: Sure. Um, I'll do my best. Um, And I guess it kind of, it's important to say as well before, before I try and do that, that, you know, I really um, deplore this increasing move globally to criminalize migrants and um, migration and to, to frame things in terms of illegality or bogus asylum seeking and so on and so forth, there's some really frightening discourses and practices um, of dehumanisation of migrants and refugees. So, so you know, I, I do very much stand with, with migrant rights advocates and critical migration studies in saying that it's it's very fundamental that we we think about migrant legality, in inverted commas, and the very substantial role that legal status plays in, in migrants' everyday lives, but as you say, and I think here there can also be something of an overemphasis on the, on the on the um, this aspect of migrant citizenship, which can sometimes come to the neglect of examining um, other aspects of citizenship. Um, and there can also be something of an overemphasis too on a kind of either-or situation where a migrant is either considered as regular or irregular. Um, and the reality, as you suggest, is is actually often a lot more complicated than this. And <laughs> what the legislation says on paper may, may not be what is enacted in practice. Um, so... I've been trying to think about how to, to explain, give you an example of this. And it's quite a complex topic to, to discuss because there are just so many intricacies to the legislation. Um, so I'm gonna try and give a bit of a simplified version um, of, of one example to show what I mean. Um, so in in simplified terms, um, in the time when I was doing this research, um, Migration legislation, this is a bit of a footnote, but migration legislation is going through a bit of a period of change in Chile now. Um, but at the time of my research, um, the, the way it looked on paper that a Bolivian would enter Chile and then start to work there would be that they would enter the country on what is called a tourist visa, um, which in the first instance would last for 90 days. During this period of being on the tourist visa, technically they couldn't really work. Um in this period, however, they could apply for something called the Mercosur Temporary Resident Visa um, at a cost of 283 US um, dollars, bearing in mind that at this stage the minimum monthly wage in Chile was 334 US dollars, so that is a substantial amount of money. Um, And they would need to apply for this while they had the tourist visa and were in Chile. It should be a straightforward process to do so. Um, And after this, um, this would kind of lead to permanent residency, was the kind of linear way that this looks on paper. And as I discuss in the book, there are lots of ways in which this is undermined in practice. Um, But to give just one example, um, in the north of Chile, in the Valle de Saba, which is near Arica, um, that this is a, a fertile, um, oasis in the desert where there's a lot of agricultural work, um, and where predominantly Aymara Bolivian migrants, um, work on agricultural small holdings. And these are settings of, real isolation and deprivation, like people working in some pretty shocking conditions and living in some pretty shocking conditions in these places. Um, and the isolation is is really fundamental here, like an isolation from kind of Chilean society more broadly, and thereby um, being cut off from understanding how processes of uh, regularization might work, for example. Um, so what I found was that a lot of these um, agricultural workers were instead of going through the process of getting a temporary resident visa and so on and so forth they were entering and exiting multiple times on tourist visas Um, and this was very much encouraged by the patron that's the word the very colonial (laughs) word that was used to Mm -hmm. refer to the um, to the owner of the small holding it you know this serves by keeping them on a tourist visa they are not undocumented per se, but they are working unauthorized and thereby it gives the patron quite a lot of power to to um, exploit them, um, which is something that migrant workers who have been doing this for a long time sort of slowly came to realize that this was a form of control and coercion rather than as the patron would often start by saying, oh, it's just easier, then you don't have to do all that or you don't have to pay that money um but as one migrant woman said to me actually being kept on this tourist visa like this gave them quote the power to enslave you you're afraid you don't have the right to demand anything um and so so yeah While whilst there'd be this like seemingly straightforward linear process that they could have gone through to get a regular status, actually in practice, something quite different was going on, which is falls into this gray area of, yeah, it's not
2: legality, it's not illegality. It's not somewhere in between. Absolutely. So they're not, they are not like hiding across the border, but at the same time, this status is a perpetual guest status, is is absolutely one of vulnerability. Absolutely. Um, so you've you've talked about this already a little bit, but I'd love to hear more about how you found um, gender, race, and class shaped Bolivian access to economic rights and economic citizenship in Chile. And you have a whole chapter on um, the experience of economic citizenship, which I I thought was a very interesting way to um, look at it at a slightly different angle than the papaleo and the the uncertainty that that paperwork and legality create.
1: Yeah, so I try to look at economic citizenship both in terms of what people have previously experienced in in Bolivia, and and it's you know it's often economic precarity which has compelled them to leave the country. Um, but I also look at it in terms of um, what their economic citizenship might look like once they're in Chile, um, particularly in Chile, in terms of access to decent work. So not just thinking about you know, access to wages and so on and so forth, but also like the, the, the nature of the work that they're engaged in um, and how precarious or not that might look. And as you suggest, absolutely, gender, race and class hugely shape Bolivian access to economic citizenship. Um, and in the book, I discuss how this plays out in a range of different employment niches from agriculture, like I've just mentioned, to the wholesale retail of garments and to domestic labour and cleaning. Um, and I think the latter gives us a very a very obvious example of this um, so there's some great work from scholars Carolina Stefani and Rosario Fernandez um, where they trace how domestic work um, in in the capital of Santiago used to be predominantly carried out by internal migrant women from from the south of Chile who are often indigenous often Mapuche or, or mestiza um, and how over time, whilst there are still Chilean women uh, carrying out these roles, um, but this employment niche has increasingly also been filled by migrant women from other Latin American countries. And this serves to reproduce a particular gendered racialized social order. Um, And this is work that entails very long hours, whilst it is nominally subject to um, labor legislation, It is often very unregulated because it happens in the private sphere of the home. Um, So, for example, a lot of the women I I worked with who did this kind of labour, they wouldn't have an employment contract, even though they should have. They would work excess hours. Um, They would often be in quite subject to quite a lot of kind of psychological abuse um, and they were very isolated. Again, isolation really comes up as a theme here, and that led to a real limiting of their ability to um, be sort of to, to engage in decent work, to have economic citizenship, but also to access their other dimensions of, of, of citizenship. Right? Um, and I talk about in an earlier chapter of in the book about how for me this is really exemplified in the geography um, and the planning of uh, upper middle-class homes in Santiago. So even today, um, houses that are designed for the upper middle classes that that are kind of maybe towards um, like the east of the city or towards the mountains um, are built with this, Bedroom and bathroom, which is called the dormitorio y baño de servicio, so a it divide. It's it's designed for um, for a live-in maid, and this room is next to the kitchen and next to the laundry. It's a tiny little pokey room, and I think this just symbolizes so clearly um, these kind of gendered and racialized hierarchies into which
2: um, you know migrant labor increasingly falls. So I. I'm particularly interested in, you have a chapter on solidarity and, or solidaridad, and you, and I was struck by the way that Bolivians criticize Chileans not necessarily as much for discrimination as for a lack of solidarity. And this is such an interesting framework because scholars tend to write about migration, assuming vast differences in culture and background between sending and receiving nations, And we can think of internal migration and external migration as something that is very different. But as you just mentioned, you have Chilean um, sort of wealthy Chilean families being used to maybe a Mapuche indigenous woman coming to clean their house. And instead, now it's a Bolivian potentially indigenous woman, maybe mestizo woman Mm -hmm. filling the same category. And so on some level, Chileans, I think, see themselves as quite different than Bolivians. But Bolivian migrants don't necessarily um, understand this to be a vast difference. And so framing their treatment in terms of expecting solidarity allows for a different kind of understanding of the exclusions they experience and the way they want to be included. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to that idea and what what that shows? Absolutely.
1: Um, So actually, really interestingly, I think you've kind of set that up really nicely for me and explained that really well um and it was in fact a a reviewer of my manuscript who pointed this out to me so so i had noted and written about throughout this chapter this call to solidarity that participants repeated but i think i was too close to the material to see it as something that was different from how migration is often framed so i'd kind of written about it in a very matter-of-fact way without realizing the, the potential significance of this um so when I revised the chapter, I tried to give it the salience it seemed to, to warrant. But as I say, it very much came from how participants talked about their difficulties accessing what I would term sort of different social rights in Chile. So they were talking about their experiences of trying to access shelter, education, healthcare, and the constant discrimination that they came up against. But the way of framing it, as you say, was, you know, in the words of a woman called Constanza, um, who had faced a lot of these kind of difficulties, was saying, I wish they would show us more solidarity when I asked her the question, what would you most like to see improved for migrants in Chile? And this was a language um, that I saw repeated. Um, So, It was striking that the material consequences of living in poor housing, struggling to access good schooling and adequate health care were obviously mentioned. But it was this sense almost of betrayal, of indignation and of a letting down of expectations that was really quite transversal to the way this was spoken about. And yeah, I guess this gives a particular character to the way that racism from Chileans was experienced by the Bolivians I worked with. Um, So, yes, words around discrimination and racism and so on and so forth would be mentioned. But yes, it would often be framed in terms of this, like this lack of of solidarity. Um, And... I think that this can encourage us as migration scholars to, to perhaps give more weight to the similarities between sending and receiving cultures and countries, to think more about, because I think a lot of migration research has been around, um, I mean, I think the terms South North are, are rather sweeping and, and need to be complicated, but to put it in in, in in those terms, a lot of migration research has been around South-North migration, right? And perhaps when we think more about what can be termed as South-South migration, we might need to rethink uh, some of these similarities and differences between sending and receiving cultures and countries and the, the complexity of ways in which discrimination may be lived and experienced. And in this case, yes, it was very much framed in, in a language more, more of a lack of solidarity
2: so then your your final chapter uh before the conclusion is about dance troops and carnival dances particularly as political practices and practices of citizenship and um i really love this chapter and i was hoping you could give the the listeners a sense of what this carnival dance tradition looks like and how bolivian migrants use dance as a political practice and how um They use this to demand space in Chile and in the cultural imagination of Chileans.
1: Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed the chapter. I think it was it was my favourite to write as well. Um, and so I'd say, uh, first of all, that quite a lot has been written in, in migration studies about migrants' political claims-making, but not in a way that recognises the potential political importance of dance or of other performance arts for migrants and ethnic minorities, whereas by contrast, um, say in the discipline of anthropology, um and not migration studies within anthropology, we have quite a lot written about um, the potential political significance of something like carnaval. And in the Bolivian context, I'm thinking uh, maybe of work by Daniel Goldstein, by Shama Sar. Um And carnival really can be seen to represent a time when the normal order of things is subverted, Um, And where through a claiming of space and a claiming of of time, ordinary people make this claim to be seen, to belong and and to be citizens. Um, And it was really a version of this that I saw happening um, in Chile. And whilst the ethnographic work I did specifically with a carnival dance group uh, was in Santiago, this was something that you could also see in the north in Arica, for example, um so to just say a little bit about, about what this might look like and, and what my participation involved. Um, so I came to uh, dance with, um, perhaps rather badly, but I did I did try my best, um, with a dance fraternity founded in 2010 um, called, uh, in, in my book, I don't use its real name, I call it Corazón de Tinkus. Um It was founded by a... Bolivian living in Chile, who I'll call Anthony, and his um, Chilean partner called Marcia, also a pseudonym. Um, and it had predominantly Bolivian members, but also Chileans, Peruvians, and me. Um, and a little of the history of this dance fraternity is important for understanding what kind of claims making was taking place. So, um, to backtrack slightly, um, the dance that this group was doing in particular, they, they were doing lots of different kinds of carnival dances, but the one that they would mainly do in street performances in Santiago is called Tincus, which is one of a myriad of um, dances that comes from Bolivia, this one specifically from um, Potosi originally. Um, and it is the danced. Uh, the, the danced iteration of the traditional tinkus fight um, and yeah I wish I had a better medium for being able to explain what that looks like so maybe if you're interested it might be worth having a look at a YouTube video or something like that to give you a sense of, of, of what this is like visually um, but so it's it's this it's, a, it's one of the traditional carnival dances from Bolivia um, and what had been happening in Chile um, kind of through through the I think particularly around the time of the student protests in 2011 in Chile, but a bit previous to that as well, is that Chilean groups had been using this dance, which, as I say, originates from this Tinkus fight, so it kind of has these warrior-like connotations. And they had been using it in these um, political protests um, that were very much related, that were very much coming from the, the more radical left. And there was, um, well, so Antony and others would claim, no recognition within these groups who were predominantly Chilean students that this was a dance that was not, as they called it, Andean, but rather was very much specifically Bolivian and came from Potosí and had a particular set of meanings within Bolivia. So Antony and others were saying that this was a case of, of real cultural appropriation by these Chilean students and that they were making... This dance into a tool for radical left politics when that was not what it was supposed to mean. And so they founded this fraternity, Corazon de Tincus, to try and combat this appropriation. And the focus of Corazon de Tincus was doing the dance properly, because Anthony said that the other groups weren't, weren't doing it well, they weren't doing it properly. Um, And shouting loudly and clearly, and and very literally, um, that the dance comes from Bolivia. So we would shout in the streets, we would say, quienes somos? Tincos somos. Who are we? We are Tincos. De donde somos? De Bolivia. Where are we from? From Bolivia. Um, And this would be a repeated chant that we would do while we were dancing. Um, and it was fundamental for Anthony that the group members would really understand what it means to dance carnival in Bolivia and and to really understand the rituals and traditions behind tinkus and other dancers. Um so Chileans and people of all nationalities could be participants in the fraternity. They were extremely welcome, but there was a real desire to sever it from the these, these radical left. Politics, even though ironically most of the group members were themselves kind of left left wing in their political persuasion. But for Anthony, that wasn't the point. It was that this was a form of cultural appropriation which he wanted to confront. Um, and moreover, dancing this in the street not only was about this kind of reappropriation, it was also a way of trying to demonstrate a, a positive. Um, Bolivian identity in the face of a lot of discrimination um, and a positive Bolivian migrant identity. Um, and, and dancing in public space was seen as a way of challenging discrimination, invisibilization, and hardship. And this was expressed not just by Anthony, but m- by many other members of the fraternity. Um, but, and I think this is really interesting, this wasn't just. The, there was a particular way of doing this dance. There was a particular way of expressing this identity, but it was one that could be learnt and expressed by Chileans, by Peruvians, by me, um, and the Bolivians expressing it. I, I think were also showing this wish to belong to to the Chilean body politic. So it was a, quite a complex, multi layered expression of of a desire for for citizenship and for political belonging across borders. Um, and I guess for me, as well, you know, there's the specific example and what it specifically meant in this, its context. But I think the the broader point is that for me, this this example really showed the relevance of, of fieldwork. Um, I would not have come to understand this without sustained ethnographic research. Um, and as with the reflections on solidarity, um, I think it through this fieldwork it helped me to challenge um some blanket assumptions about migrants lived experience about what politics might look like. Um, so so yes, it was one of the very, very interesting
2: and, and rich parts of my research. Fieldwork and participant observation particularly, yeah. And I I I like the distinction you draw here between it's not that um you couldn't do the dance or that Peruvians or Chileans couldn't do the dance, but the dance has to be done in its Bolivian context and, and mm. the participants have to, um, the Bolivians have to control the process, right, of, a, mm-hmm. of the culture. And that's, um, that's a, it's a good example of that. So then what's next for you in your research? You have, um, this book has come out and, um, you know, won awards from, from Lhasa and um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. So where are you going in your research next?
1: Um, well, I guess there's kind of continuities and change in my research. So in terms of continuities, I'm, I'm still working on migration in, in Chile. Um, I'm currently halfway through a three-year project um, where I'm working with uh, Colombian women migrants in Antofagasta in Chile, which is also a northern city, although not quite as far north as Arica. Um and between 2019 and, and the very start of this year, pre-COVID, um, I co- I've completed uh, five months fieldwork in Antofagasta, but also, again, I'm doing sort of multi sided work um, in the Valle de Cauca in Colombia as well, which is where most of the women I work with are, are, are coming from. Um, and this included in, in July of last year, I did an overland bus journey from Cali to Antofagasta, which was um it took eight days um 87 hours on buses it was it was quite an odd scene hard (laughs) it was (laughs) although I feel like you know my experiences were nothing compared to those of 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 the people I work with so um yeah but it was it was a real eye-opener and um more conceptually the reason I've been doing this work is because I'm I'm kind of, I'm maintaining my previous interests in, in citizenship and migration, but I'm really trying to push further in terms of exploring um, structural violence and also in this context, physical violence and ideas around bordering. So so that those are the kind of conceptual ideas I'm, I'm trying to develop further in this work. Um, and I'm also in this project really hoping to look at alternative ways of producing research outputs that have more relevance to the people who I work with. Um, so, you know, it's all very well to write this book in English and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it and I'm very pl- pleased that it was released, but one is left with the question of, of what does this mean for the people I work with? Um, and I think for me, one of the things that I'm now trying to do is I'm becoming increasingly interested in, in ways of co-producing, always imperfectly, I think. But um, I'm currently trying to make a short animated video um, with a group of women um, and a video designer that will tell some of their stories in a way that we hope can reach a broader audience and also be more of a, a sort of a joint effort to produce this. So yes, that's where I'm at at the moment, in the middle of work. So it's all a bit messy, but but I'm really, really enjoying it.
2: That's um, That's a really great project and I look forward to seeing how it comes together. And uh, especially that the short animated video, did that come from um, a suggestion from, from the people you were talking to? Or how did you choose to to focus on, on short and animated or an animated video?
1: Um, I guess it was a kind of a... A range of things, really, I guess, from conversations with with people I've worked with over the years and and thinking about this issue of the relevance of my research, how to communicate it and how to better co-produce it. So that was where the idea for perhaps a more visual medium came from and, and for a video and then animated that. Well, there were various reasons for them. that one is because I, I have a, a very good long-standing friendship with a video animator. um so I knew the kind of things that, that animation could be used to do and because it provides a perfect vehicle really for 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 doing something that's anonymized um, and that's really important because I work with quite vulnerable populations and um, people who really want to share their stories, but in a way that is safe. And so by having an illustrated video, this, this provides us with a way of, of doing that.
2: That sounds like a, a perfect vehicle for that. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for all of your answers and for talking to me about this book. I really encourage our listeners to go out and, uh, and re- pick it up and read it. Um, and thank you so much. I hope you have uh, a great afternoon.
1: No, Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you and I really appreciate the time that you've taken to, to read the book and, and really engage with me on it. Thank you.